It's October 25th. You're listening to the Humanist Network News, an audio production by the Institute for Humanist Studies. I'm your host, Duncan Crary. And I'm your host, Jess Constantine. Folks, have we got a show for you today? I think we outdid ourselves this time, Jess. You might be right, Duncan. I mean, we've got not one, but two. Two celebrity interviews for you. That's right. You so just, who's on you, the show? You just couldn't wait to get that out, Duncan. I'm very you? excited. I know. Well, all right. We've got Julia Sweeney, who is uh-huh. formerly of Saturday Night Live. You might recognize her character, Pat. I do recognize her character, Pat. Nice. Well, currently, she is performing her monologue called Letting Go of God mm-hmm. in New York City. That's right. Through the 29th of October. But she's going to be at Harvard tomorrow, October 26th. Nice. We've also got uh, cartoonist Matt Bors, who's comic uh, Idiot Box mm-hmm. often appears, actually regularly appears yep. in our Humanist Network News cathartic comics. Yeah, that's our e-zine humanistnetworknews.org. Matt went undercover for us uh, to do a special Halloween investigative report that we'll you'll hear more about later. That's right, and we've got our executive director here at the Institute, mm-hmm. Matt Cherry, mm-hmm. who asks the million dollar question, drum roll please. Does that sound like a drum? <laughs> Sometimes I say drum roll, please, and I don't really mean it. <laughs> anyway, the million-dollar question is, is Halloween a sacred or secular holiday? All right, now, Jess, I mean, Matt Boers and Matt Cherry are pretty well-known. They are. But you said two celebrity interviews. I did, and you know what? I'm going to tell you who that second celebrity is as soon as you tell these good people what humanism is. Humanism is a non-religious philosophy based on reason and compassion. I.e., we're good folks who aren't so much down with God. G to the O to the D. That's right. You had to steal it. <laughs> <laughs> We're behaving well even though no one's watching. That's right. Okay, so on to the next celebrity. All right. So if you've been listening to the Humanist Network News podcast, then you're quite familiar with our second celebrity, Holly Near. Mm-hmm. We play her song, which is our her, humanist anthem. Her humanist anthem. That's right. That's Sorry, right. Jess. I'm jumping in. I know. <laughs> Let me just get two seconds of fame here. It's called I Ain't Afraid, and we play it at the beginning of each show for our theme music. Mm-hmm. And earlier in the month, uh, Holly was performing in Albany, New York, where the Humanist Network News is produced. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Duncan and I... Yeah, we caught her before the show. That's right. And then we dragged her into an alleyway. We did. For an interview. It was freezing cold. Poor woman. Where is she? From California? <laughs> and it's, you know... <laughs> The middle of the autumn in New England, and she's not dressed for the weather. No, she's not. So so she was there to perform a concert. We spoke to her about her song, I Ain't Afraid, and we spoke to her about some of her, some of her activism. But before we get into that, um, some people might know Holly Near from her acting uh, career also, right? That's right. She uh, appeared in The Partridge Family. That's right. And All in the Family with Archie Bunker. Remember that? That's right. Uh-huh. L.A. Law. Uh-huh. The Mod Squad. The Mod Squad, yeah. And then she did... Uh, the film version of Slaughterhouse Five by uh, by the famous humanist Kurt Vonnegut. Nice. One of my uh, one of the alumni at my school, Michael Sachs, had had a lead role in that too. I wonder if wonder if Holly Near knows Michael Sachs. I wonder. But getting back on track, Duncan, <laughs> Holly Near's musical collaborators include work with Pete Seeger, uh-huh. Arlo Guthrie, Bonnie Raitt, mm-hmm. Ronnie Gilbert, and tons more. Right. All right. Well, let's hear what Holly Near had to say for us. Holly Near, our listeners to our podcast are very familiar with your song, I Ain't Afraid, because you generously donated the, the use of it for our theme music. And I wanted to ask you, what were you feeling at the time you wrote that song? Why did you write the song? And have your feelings changed recently? I grew up in a family that really supported the idea of fascination over fear. And that sometimes there really is a reason to be afraid, but we always try on fascination first. And as far as I can tell, religion should be a way in which people gather together to honor the unknown, not the known. You gather together to uh, be in a state of awe at the fact that we're spinning through space at an unimaginable rate of speed. It's the only planet we know of that has life on like like this. And and how 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 did we get so that we let that lead to murder and to destruction and criticism and fighting. So that's my belief system is the open door policy and and interested in all sorts of things. Not that there shouldn't be belief systems or spirituality or religion, but that none of those beliefs should be imposed on other people and it should all be in a state of investigation. So, and, and, and community building and cultural building, but not a war zone. And I see in these times, and probably for thousands of years before, but this is when I'm alive, that that need for people to take sides around religion 
uh, to have everybody praying, or if you're not a Christian, or if you're not supporting this flag, or if you're not a Muslim and supporting that flag, or if you're not a Jew and supporting that flag, um, that we therefore are at a war with one another is just, to me, an absurd path to go down. But once you start the idea that my God is the right God, and your God is the wrong God, and you get that feeling so strongly impounded into your brain as you're growing up, or in some sort of um, transformation where you feel like your life was so changed that now you're going to hold tight to this belief system, people over history have actually been talked into committing genocide in the name of their God or um, destroying another culture. So the song came out of my wanting to say to people, it's not your God I have problems with, it's what you do in the name of that God. You're well known as uh, for your gay rights uh, advocacy, but you also um, sort of take the step back and focus on the, the more broader human rights. And I just wanted to know uh, why is that important to you instead of focusing on one specific movement? Why, why take the broader step back? Well, I don't believe in causes. I think that we are holistic people. We have arms and legs, and if you only struggle for arms, you kind of leave your legs out of the picture. And so I've always felt like as I learned something else, when I, I first learned about wanting to be against war, and then I learned about feminism, and then I learned about gay and lesbian rights, and I learned about the environment, and I learned about immigration, and I learned about the prison system. And in, instead of running from one cause to another, I just keep putting that information into my toolbox as if I were in the university of life and I'm heading for a PhD, I just want to keep bringing it all into my library. And, and it makes me a more holistic, interesting person and it makes me capable of appreciating, appreciating other people better the more I know. And so, uh, folks who just focus on one thing, I mean, there are, there are certain times when I think it's really important to take on an issue and put all, we only have so much energy and put your energy into it. But gay people come in all colors. They come from all countries, and so you can't really be for gay rights and not think about what's happening to someone who's in Rwanda. I mean, how do you separate that? Are we only for gay rights of people who are in white middle, upper middle class United States? Well, that's not a gay rights movement. And, and if you're working on racism, but you don't include gay people, then you only want freedom from racism for people who are heterosexuals. You know, I mean, you can't break us up into little pieces like that, as much as people try. And I'm just unwilling to be chopped up into little pieces. That was a short clip of Holly Near's Singing for Our Lives, which happens to be our co-worker Judy Disco's favorite song by Holly Near. Mm -hmm. Now, Judy was actually at the show that we were not able to make yeah, after we, had to we interviewed right her. Afterwards, yeah. And uh, she came into the studio to tell us some of the things that she thought. Yeah. You know, how the show went. All about and, the show. Yeah. So we're joined by Judy Disco, the Director of Administration here at the Institute. Judy, you were at the Holly Near concert that night. Jess and I had to leave after we interviewed her in the alley. And how was the show? It was fantastic. Uh, it, she came out onto the stage, and uh, you know, I think it just was a flood of memories for people there about, especially who are anti-war people, and uh, thinking about all the years of, of of protesting, and then what's going on in our country right now. And here she was, you know, the the person who had a lot to say and sing about it. Mm -hmm. um, she was very interesting. She talked a lot about aging and all the gray hair in the audience, which was <laughs> quite interesting. Um, but she really gave a historical perspective of her song. She reached back into her, into her musical bag and, and, and did a lot of her old stuff and uh -huh. uh, did, did some new things because she has a new CD that's out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she gave her perspective on uh, coming out as, uh, to her parents as a, as a lesbian when she got involved with a woman then going back in the closet and uh -huh. uh, when was this back in the 80s she back came in out? the 80s yes and then uh, being involved with a man and currently i'm not quite sure where she is in, yeah. in that stage of her life uh, -huh. uh she talked about her musical performances with pete seeger and uh ronnie gilbert who are two very old-time um, folk 
yeah. uh, masters, I'll say. Did you play your, any of your favorite songs? Yeah, there were several favorites, and I just can't remember all their names, but she's just really, really very talented. Uh-huh. So how long have you been a fan of, uh, of Holly's? Probably about... Dun, 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 um, <laughs> probably about 30 years. Okay. Now... She's um, played an important role as uh, you know, a musician and an activist in people's mm-hmm. lives and mm-hmm. how she sort of weaves the two in. Uh, how has uh, she impacted your life? Well, you know, as a lesbian, as a feminist, as a woman, uh, you sometimes compartmentalize the issues and she just brings it all together for you. And I think as uh, what she talked about at the performance was it's about human rights. It's not just lesbian and gay rights. It's just not the, the war issue. It's not racism. It's all the isms and everything, yeah, just right. bringing it together and how they all intersect. It's like what she said to us in our interview with her, right? That's right. A little bit. Well, Judy, thanks so much for, for popping in the studio to talk with us. No problem. It was a great concert. Great. Excellent. Thank thanks, you. Judy. Thanks. That was Judy Disco talking with us about uh, going to see Holly Near in Albany. Holly Near is really cool, isn't she, Jess? She definitely is. Yeah, I really enjoyed meeting her. So that's why all you listeners need to log on to hollynear.com, learn more about her songs, her activism, and get on that email list so you can find out when she's going to be playing in your town. And don't forget that you can send her an email telling her that you heard her on our show. Okay? <laughs> So next up's Julia Sweeney. That's right. As we mentioned, uh, Julia is currently performing her monologue, Letting Go of God. Oh, so let's play a clip of that before we introduce her. Sounds good. Not too long ago, two Mormon missionaries came to my door, and they had little name tags that identified them as official representatives of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they said they had a message for me from God. I said, a message for me from God? And they said... Yes, and they told me the story all about this guy named Lehi who lived in Jerusalem in 600 B.C. (laughs) Then they told me how Lehi and his descendants reproduced and reproduced, and over the course of 600 years, there were two great races of them, the Nephites and the Lamanites. And the Nephites were totally, totally good, each and every one of them, and the Lamanites were totally bad and evil, every single one of them just bad to the bone. (laughs) Then... After Jesus died on the cross for our sins, on his way up to heaven, he stopped by America and visited the Nephites. (laughs) And he told them that if they all remained totally, totally good, each and every one of them, they would win the war against the evil Lamanites. But apparently, somebody blew it, and the Lamanites were able to kill all the Nephites. All but one guy, this guy named Mormon, who managed to survive by hiding in the woods. And he made sure this whole story was written down in reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, chiseled onto gold plates, which he then buried near Palmyra, New York. (laughs) Well, I was so into this story, I was just on the edge of my seat. I said, what happened to the Lamanites? And they said, well, they became our Native Americans here in the U.S. And I said, so you believe the Native Americans are descended from a people who were totally evil? And they said, yes. Then they told me how this guy named Joseph Smith found those buried gold plates right in his backyard. And he also found a magic stone back there that he put into his hat and then buried his face into. And this allowed him to translate the gold plates from the reformed Egyptian into English. Well, at this point, I just wanted to give these two boys some advice about their pitch. I wanted to say, okay, don't start with this story. I mean, even the Scientologists know to start with a personality test before they start telling people all about Xenu, the evil intergalactic overlord. That was a 2005 recording of Julia Sweeney's performance of Letting Go of God at the Ayers Nova Theater. You can buy it on CD right now at her website, juliasweeney.com. That's right. And for those of you who aren't yet familiar with Letting Go of God, uh, perhaps you remember Julia from Saturday Night Live, as we mentioned before. Uh, she created the character, the, the gender-ambiguous character. Very ambiguous character. Pat. 
And she actually created this character uh, on her own at an acting improv class. And, you know, the folks from SNL were like, we, we got to have this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, after she did her SNL stint for four years, was it? So you're saying instead, so basically you're saying, though, instead of going to SNL and they're creating this character for her, she brought Pat to SNL. That's what I'm saying, That's Duncan. awesome. Yeah, I know. So after her stint with SNL, she did some, some uh, movie appearances, right? She was on uh, Stuart Little. She yeah. was in Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. What was the movie she mentioned in her show last night? <laughs> um, she mentioned that she was the mother in Beethoven's third and fourth. The, the third and fourth installments of this movie series. Correct. About big dogs, right? Correct. St. Bernard's. <laughs> she had some. Uh, she actually had one of her uh, sort of an epiphany uh-huh. about her spirituality uh-huh. during that movie, which makes me want to go back and watch it again and see if I can, you know, see the look on her face. Yeah, I definitely. <laughs> Speaking of epiphanies, so Letting Go of God is this one-woman show, and it's about Julia Sweeney's spiritual journey to spiritual-less-ness, right? That's pretty awkward. <laughs> that's right. It but is a little awkward. It's a story about how she <laughs> basically came to con- the understanding that there is no God and that we're going to be okay anyway. That's right. So Jess and I hopped in the car, drove down to New York City last night, got the chance to speak with her before the performance in her penthouse above the Ayers Nova Theater. That's right. Here it is. Julian Sweeney, we're here with you in New York City where your one-person show, Letting Go of God, is playing currently through the 29th. And I imagine that tonight's audience will probably be a mixed background, people of all religious beliefs and none. And I'm aware that you have performed for audiences that were entirely atheistic. And I'm just wondering, what the uh, do you sense a difference in the audience? Um, do, they, do people laugh at different jokes? What's the audience's reactions? Well, in some ways, it's hard to have a um, find a real consistent answer to that because there's always times where it's different than we think. But I have to say my atheist audiences or my non-belief, non-believer audiences aren't all, aren't really necessarily the best ones because they've sort of heard all this before or like it's not um like naughty and titillating to think of somebody making fun of the bible this is something that they've gone through they've gone through the similar experience as me so they don't really laugh that hard at that part of it where like a mainstream our mainstream audience laughs much harder at me making fun of the church and laughing at the bible it's kind of funny um and uh, although I, you know, I'm already thinking of exceptions to that rule, but in general, um, an educated general public is probably my best audience. Um, even though I love doing the show for, I've been doing the show at a lot of different conferences, like Freedom from Religion and, you know, Atheist International stuff like that. And those audiences are are all great, but I really love the general public more because I feel like I'm getting some people who've never heard someone talk this way. Speaking of attending these um, uh, conferences of atheist organizations, I, you've been to every atheist conference I can think of in North America and even Iceland. Um, because after you perform, you, you, you get to actually meet some of these people. So what are your thoughts on the organized atheist movement? Some of the people you've met, I understand, are uh, some real characters. Well, it does have some characters. <laughs> there are characters in this, but... You know, I have a, you know, on the one hand, I feel so, such an affinity with them because I feel the same way as them. And most of them are people who have gone through a religious, been raised in a religious home and then have come out of it because the kind of shock that you go through when you sort of realize the truth, I, you know, after you have been in it is like a bigger outrage than when you just sort of are raised in a secular way, I think. Although there's also a lot of people who are were raised secularly and are just outraged by what's happening in the country. So there's those people too. And there are some oddballs, but there are oddballs at church. I mean, come on. I mean, there is, you know, you want to see some oddballs, go to the 6 a.m. mass at, you know, Our Lady of the Angels around the corner. Um, so I would say the percentage of oddballs is either the same or maybe it's, I think it's about the same. It's just that in some ways people expect an or- atheist organization to have oddballs. So you're already coming in with a preconceived notion that there are going to be oddballs there. And I was, was such a lover of being involved with churches that to me, those people that you might term oddballs, I love them. You know, like to me, that's just the spice of the organization. Um, on the other hand, I will say that just being an atheist is a person, the type of personality who's willing to say that they're an atheist is a person who doesn't mind being not aligned with the mainstream of society and that and there are also people that don't necessarily join groups at all like so they're so they're kind of in this group but they're really not um 
group type people. And I think that makes it hard for atheist organizations to keep groups together because just the very type of profile of a person who would be an atheist is by nature a person who doesn't join groups. So, but I love them. I love them. I mean, to me, these are my peeps. <laughs> Some people could say that uh, you're doing for uh, the humanist movement uh, what Chris Rock has done with uh, uh, racial discrimination or, you know, Helen DeGeneres, Helen DeGeneres, Ellen DeGeneres has done for, uh, for homosexuality. Uh, you know, taking a, a topic that could be very uh, uncomfortable to, to talk about or uh, you know, wouldn't come up in dialogue every day, but you're making it okay not only to talk about it, but, you know, to laugh at it. And I was wondering if that was a goal of yours or if, if you know, you take your life experience and use that as material um, for personal growth. Um, well, that is a really good question. First of all, thank you so much for the compliment because I feel like I'm so below the radar compared to people like Helen DeGeneres and Chris Rock. I am like down underneath the one inch scale on the fame and they're like above the five feet level. So, but, but that makes me happy that I can do that because I like... Um, I mean, of course, I feel proud of that, you know, and I, I want people to be able to talk about their faith and their lack of faith in particular more openly um, because I um, I probably wouldn't care about it if we had a different kind of government and political situation in the United States right now. I mean, my mother even says to me, why are you so outspoken about it? Like, why can't you just keep this to yourself? Like, why do you have to engage people in conversations about it? And my feeling is, when I first lost my faith, I did keep it to myself. And that's when, just about six months later, is when 9-11 happened. And when that happened, I thought, oh, well, this is a horrible tragedy. But now people are seeing just in bald face what happens when fundamentalist belief systems are carried out to their logical conclusion. And now, you know, even vaguely, even because you want to believe in a heaven, this is the dark side of that belief. And and I kept thinking, oh, I can't wait for all these, you know, fundamentalist preachers to come out because they're going to be so embarrassed at this huge example of the worst side of religion. And then the opposite thing happened. Our president started using more religious terms. He started using terms like evildoers. He started framing things with religious type ideology and the way that the sentences were phrased. And then the country itself became more religious. And that's when I saw the I feel the weaker side of humanity that scares me because I think when people are afraid, like the country was afraid, they turn to things like supernatural belief systems to grab onto. Even though like when I did God Said Ha, my first monologue, and people would say, what's your message? I would feel like, well, I have no message. I'm an artist. I do my art. You take your message. And this show, I don't mean it as a way to convert people to atheism or humanism or non-belief. I'm really just telling my story. On the other hand... I can't help but feeling, you know, outspoken about this issue politically and how it affects other people. So I guess I have two feelings about it. A lot of the material you use in your performance is drawn from your experiences with your, with your parents and their upbringing of you. Uh, now I see you're contributing a chapter to a book on secular parenting, and uh, you are a secular parent yourself. So I'm wondering, um, how is the experience going for you and... and uh, do, do, does it turn out that your your parents actually did a pretty good job for you in spite of the religious upbringing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I well, the best thing that ever happened to my parents was that I became a parent because now I know how hard it is. And now I every day I have a portion of the day where I look back and blush and feel guilt over my unaware um, judgmental attitude about their parenting in the face of making 600 decisions a day about being a parent myself three quarters of which are good and one quarter of which could be used against me at any time. <laughs> All right, Jess, stop the tape. I think that we need to consult the expert on this matter, don't you? Yeah. All right. M-U-L-A-N. Mulan, um, is, your, uh, is your mommy a good mommy, you think? Yes. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, folks, you heard it yourself. That was Mulan, Julia Sweeney's daughter, being asked by Duncan uh, what she thinks about Julia's ability to parent. <laughs> I always ask the most invasive questions, don't I? Yeah, you do. All right, back to the, uh, back to the interview. So I feel great benevolence towards my parents. And um, it's very interesting. My mother, um, who is a believer and a Catholic, her friend came out here to New York, who is also a Catholic, but then... Um, was teaching CCD and they asked her to teach the Old Testament and that 
started this whole unraveling of the entire entire church to her and she became an atheist and she's you know a spokane woman in the catholic culture who's 80 and she came out here and we were talking about it and i wasn't saying like why did you raise me catholic of course they were going to raise me catholic my parents were both catholic everyone was catholic we were irish it was catholic 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 but joy made this point that i've been turning over in my head she goes but julia your mother was 21 when she had you. And even if she had gone through your enlightening experience when you did, which was at age 40, you would have already been raised by then. Like that, who knows how you would have even raised a child if you'd had a child at 21. You know, it takes a certain amount of maturity and guts and looking into something to really let go of all that stuff. And I don't know, I just am thinking about that. Like I thought that was a really good comment, an accurate comment. And like when I look at my parents, I think they did the best they could with the resources they had. And one of the resources they had was the Catholic Church and it absolutely benefited their life and it benefited our life. I was in a community. I understood my neighborhood. I understood how to trust other people by their allegiance to this club that we were all in, the Catholic Church. Um, it was an insurance policy. You know, when the somebody's cousin died, we were all there doing what we could. You know, like the religion worked. And it's a source of conflict for me about my own daughter because I wish I had that to plug her into and I don't. It's definitely a loss. I feel sorry for her that she doesn't have, it's not like religion, but that tightly knit community that's bound together, not just by being at the tennis club or something, but by rituals and, you know, that those rituals and that religion really bonded people together in a way that I don't know how to replace. And I think that it is a loss. On the other hand, I just don't think I could possibly send her to a religious school. I mean, I certainly wouldn't in LA. I Sometimes I fantasize that I'm going to move back to Spokane because I love Spokane. And all my friends are there still raising their kids and they're all in the Catholic schools. And it would be very odd for me to move back there and not send my daughter to a Catholic school. And then I thought, well, I could be driving her to school saying, well, you know, I don't believe this but you'll make up your own choice but i wouldn't send her to a catholic school not because of the religious teaching i wouldn't care about that because i feel like i could argue my side of that to her it's because i think even a vague belief in god suppresses your sense of wonder about the world in a way that would cause my daughter to be less curious than if she was raised in a purely secular way I mean, I think that's my sense of wonder about the world and my appreciation of being a part of nature and just the accident of my consciousness being alive for a few decades is so exponential compared to when I even had a modern view of God and a very vague idea of God. And so that's what I want to prevent for her. I want her to get that sense of wonder right away because, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be here, you know. I could have died when I was 35 when I had cancer and I would never have gotten to experience looking at the world the way I now look at the world, which to me is a beautiful and real way of looking at the world. And um, and it's also what makes us human beings. That's what's different between me and my dog. My dog can't know anything about the world. And I really feel like religion keeps people immature in a way that keeps them less human than they could otherwise be. I wouldn't forgive myself if I left this interview with you, uh, not asking you uh, what the sex of your Saturday Night Live character, Pat, was. Pat was originally inspired by a guy. So I was kind of trying to imitate a guy. And then it became another woman and another guy. So if you could divide Pat up, Pat is two men to one woman. But then I'm a woman playing Pat. So I say it still comes down 50-50. And I always felt... Um, I always felt like I didn't even know what Pat's gender was. Pat was just this character that I created that existed on Pat's own. But I did have one person come to me and say, I know that Pat's a woman. And I said, how? And they said, um, we were at this party at Kathy Griffin's house. It was so funny. And I was like, how? And they go, because when you were in that sketch with Harvey Keitel and he kissed you, you, the Pat character, moved Pat's head in a girl way. It like It took the submissive head position. And I went, really and they said yeah and i said oh my god if that's true and it turned out to be true you totally nailed it i guess pat's a woman then <laughs> because i didn't even think of that as the actress i didn't even occur to me to how um how i didn't i just kissed like i would always kiss 
I know, I guess. I know. And it's also, it doesn't have to be submissive dominant. It can be just kind of one to the side and one to the other, but. But it was true when I went and looked at it, it was more of a girl. Like, he was kissing me more like a guy, and I was being kissed more like a girl. So, I don't know. <laughs> I think my parents had been mildly disappointed when I told them I didn't believe in God anymore, but being an atheist was another thing altogether. <laughs> Frankly, I hadn't even described myself as an atheist, although I suppose I am one. I, I don't live my life under the assumption that there is a God, so I suppose that makes me an atheist. Atheist, non-theist. But I like the word naturalist more. To me, atheist defines me on religious terms. I mean, I believe in a holy natural universe, and that makes religious people, in my mind, a naturalist. That was another clip from Julia Sweeney's CD, Letting Go of God. And you can pick up your own copy of Letting Go of God at Julia's website, juliasweeney.com. Letting Go of God is being performed right now in New York City through October 29th. She's going to be performing at Harvard tomorrow, October 26th. So after we interviewed Julia Sweeney, we stuck around in New York City so we could catch her show, and it was awesome. It was awesome. Well, first we were just on a, on a rush because we'd met Julia Sweeney. She was so nice. She was great. She was the most humble and funny and comfortable person I've ever been around. Yeah, definitely. So what was your reaction to the show? I mean, like, like it was fun listening to people, watching the audience members. It was. Uh, you know, there was the moaner. The moaner? <laughs> yes, there was somebody in the audience who was, like, moaning. Mm. They were really feeling it. <laughs> I was convinced that um, there was somebody famous sitting in front of me. Uh, I thought she was the coroner from Law and Order. Even though time and time again I told Duncan it's not her. It, all right, whoever it was was famous. She was looked like she was really moved. <laughs> she, did. she did. She did. I think a lot of people actually. And there was even yeah. someone uh, with a yarmulke on, and and he he didn't boo at least. <laughs> yeah, he was getting a kick out of <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, he was. The coolest thing for me was hearing Julia Sweeney quote in her show uh, Massimo Piglucci, who's. Uh, she's quoting him about intelligent design, and he wrote a course for the the institute's online school for humanism That's about right. the continuum design. of humanist education, which you can learn more about at humanisteducation.com. Mm-hmm. So, folks, support Julia Sweeney. Go to her website, pick up her CD. Oh, and you can also send her an email and let her know that you heard her on our show. Nice. Yeah, we really got to support her. So, next up, we've got some listener comments this month. Hey, this is Brett from Connecticut calling. Just heard podcast number 11. Good stuff. I like the discussion about the uh, political scene at the uh, Louisiana legislature. And uh, in this political season, I'm wondering, where are the humanist politicians out there? Or is that just an oxymoron? Uh, i got to believe there's one or more, hopefully. Uh, maybe it's a needle in a haystack. So anyway, I'd love your feedback and any research you may have done to that point. I'm from Connecticut. We have our own slim pickings here. But, uh, you know, who are the candidates that maybe line up best with a humanist point of view? I'm an independent registered voter, so I'd like to lean my vote that way. And I can't be the only one considering these questions. So uh, any take you may have on it is appreciated. I'll be listening. Thanks again. Good job, everybody. I love Brett from Connecticut. He always calls in with an awesome comment for our show. Other people, are you listening? can learn a lot from Brett. So, Brett, I can't actually help you with your specific predicament, but I can direct you to the people who can. The Institute for Humanist Studies is a founding member of the Secular Coalition for America. And right now they're holding a Find an Atheist, Humanist, or Freethinker Elected Official Contest. You can actually win a 1000 bucks if you supply the SEA with the name of the highest elected humanist official in the u.s there's certain rules to the contest i don't know them all so visit secular.org to get information really cool contest hi this is bill young calling from uh, albury california usa just listened to my first uh, program and i'm very impressed with the whole thing except that i heard an awful lot about god in that song which i would rather not have heard you know we atheists are accused of being the only place that you can go to hear God talked about all the time. I wish we could find a way of communicating without thinking that we need to speak either for or against the God believers. That's it for now. Thanks. Bye. All right, Bill. 
since we here at Humanist Network News are here to please our listeners, we thought that uh, for your listening pleasure, we would have the topic of the next show be none other than sex. All sex. All podcasts long. The H&N Sex Edition. All right, folks. To call the H&N listener comment line, dial 206-339-4168, or you can Skype us at HNN underscore editor. And seriously, Bill, thank you for your comment. It was, it was well, it was taken. Yeah, there is a lot of God. He's right. There's a lot of God talk. There is. Among atheist groups. All right. So the calendar tells me it's almost time for Halloween. Ooh, who are you going to be this year for Halloween, Jess? <laughs> a, pirate. a pirate. Absolutely. I can see that coming. Don't you have a friend who always dresses as a cat, and this year she's going to go as a cat pirate? I have a seven-year-old friend who, indeed, she's not quite ready to let go of the whole cat thing, but she's going to throw in the pirate as well. All right. Up next is Matt Boers, creator of the Idiot Box cartoon, which you can read weekly at humanistnetworknews.org, which is our e-zine. Matt went and did some special undercover investigative cartoon journalism. He went to a hell house or a judgment house, I guess it's called, in Ohio. Here's Matt. Yeah, uh, it was in this little town called Norton, Ohio, uh, outside of Akron. And it, was, it wasn't it was a hell house. It was called Judgment House. Oh, a judgment yeah. house. What, what the hell is yep. a judgment house? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess a hell house is uh, like a little bit more uh, in your face with like botched abortions, gay people dying of AIDS, like just... Uh, school shootings, stuff like that. This was, uh, they call it a judgment house. It was kind of like a, basically a walkthrough play. And uh, you go through each scene, and they have different actors playing the same characters. And Matt, let me just cut in. Th- these are hosted by churches, right, or religious groups? Yeah, this is a, this was a brethren church. And they were definitely of the, uh, you know, evangelical uh, mold. So the... The thing was, we went through, and it was uh, the story of a family of five, a Christian family, and the daughter is uh, running around with with bad boy Mike, who you know doesn't have uh, a steady family or a solid family, and is you know rebellious. So it it was kind of boring for a while. I was wondering like when something cool was going to happen. There was a lot of scenes of like the family fighting and the girl you know talking to her boyfriend and stuff, and then. So then eventually it culminates in her running away and going to this party where they get drunk and, uh, you know, predictably a uh, car crash ensues and they're both in the hospital. So this is the good part. Now while they're in the coma, Mike is in a coma. And while Mike is in a coma, he uh, is shown what his judgment will be like. So we go into this room and there's this guy up on this altar in white robes who apparently is God. And he... (laughs) You know, it's telling Mike that he's going, you know, he can't come into heaven because he is basic, or he asked him why first, why he should let him into heaven. And Mike says, oh, well, you know, I've been a good person and stuff like that. And he says, oh, you, you know, no, you haven't. You haven't believed in me. You haven't been faithful. And, and, and then, like, the lights go out and there's, like, red flashing lights and screams and you hear, like, chains and you see, like, figures moving around and stuff and, like, Mike's screaming. So he's, you know, he goes to hell for eternity uh, to burn in hell for for eternity for you know his 16 years of you know just kind of being uh you know a stupid teenager i guess so that's pretty unfortunate for him but uh there's people in the group that were like you know moved to tears by this which i found pretty amazing and Mm -hmm. um and then the other the girl while she's in a in the hospital she has a dream and she's uh basically shamed because um there's this room full of file cabinets that we walk through, and they're all her sins. And All right, Jess, stop the tape again. All of her sins in a file cabinet in heaven? That reminds me of, of the old joke about the guy who goes up to heaven, uh-huh. and he finds out that uh, there's all these clocks in heaven that keep track of how much time you spend masturbating. <laughs> okay. So this guy's looking around. He sees all of his friends. He's joking. He's like, wait a minute, where's my clock? So, oh, well, God put that in his office. You know, the arms are spinning so fast that he just uses it as a fan now. <laughs> nice, Duncan. All right, back to the interview. So, Matt, what's the point? So, are they trying to, um, they're obviously, they're trying to scare the hell out of people uh, who are going yeah. to this play. And then, and then what? Do they start preaching to you or what? Well, I thought, I thought it interesting because, I mean, what could you derive from that scene other than they were trying to scare you into, you know, believing in not just Christianity, but a very literal form of it. I mean, that unless you adhere strictly 
to the Bible that you're just going to burn in hell no matter how good of a person you were. Mm -hmm. And I talked to one of the administrators and he said, the quote I got from him was, we're not trying to scare people, just present them with some truth, show them reality. And I, I talked to a couple people that worked there and a couple people that went through and they all basically said the same thing, that they thought it was very real and just kind of, you know, just kind of showing things the way they are instead mm -hmm. of, you know, stripped down, bare naked truth, mm -hmm. which, you know, uh, I, I, which was pretty interesting to me. So at the end, uh, uh, without a choice, it didn't. It seemed they just kind of usher you into this room where people are waiting to pray with you and talk to you. So I'm with a group of three other people, and uh, we're all atheists. So we sit down with this 19-year-old <clears throat> guy, and he starts talking, and mm -hmm. and he says something really interesting. And this was at the beginning of our discussion, after knowing us for only a few minutes. He said, I can tell you that the power of Jesus is real because Jesus, without Jesus, I would be gay right now. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was a stunning admission, especially to someone that you don't know. And I felt like hugging him and like spiriting him, spiriting him away from the church and saying, you know, it's okay to be gay, but he wasn't, I don't think he was belief that being gay is okay so yeah wow so when they show you the uh the images of hell do you see other uh freelance humanist cartoonists like yourself like uh, did you see J jess Winston down there <laughs> no. <laughs> no so well listen yeah. matt uh thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with us thanks matt all right thanks That was Matt Bors, creator of the Idiot Box cartoon. We spoke to Matt Monday by telephone. You can read Matt Bors' special investigative report on The Judgment House in our easing this week at humanistnetworknews.org. Also, make sure you check out Matt's website, mattbors.com. That's B-O-R-S. And another public service announcement because I'm full of them today. All of our cartoons who contribute to our weekly easing, all of those cartoons are donated to us by the cartoonists. We're not actually paying any of them. So we need you to support our cartoonists as much as you can. So if you like their stuff, contact your local alternative weekly editor and ask them to please carry Idiot Box, Free Thunk, Boiling Point, Nearing Zero, you name it, all those cartoons. Big Fat Whale. Well done, Duncan. All right, so up next we've got... Matt Cherry, who is the executive director here at the Institute for Humanist Studies, and he's going to examine the origins of Halloween by reading his essay, Is Halloween Sacred, Secular, or Satanic? A Humanist Perspective on a Religious Controversy. It's become an autumn ritual. Fundamentalist Christians condemn Halloween for promoting Satanism, and pagans condemn the fundamentalists for promoting intolerance. The only thing that both sides agree on is that today's Halloween is pagan in origin. The media seem to follow their lead. Every October we read stories about the millennia-old roots of trick-or-treat and other Halloween traditions. But are these tales of druid rituals surviving into 21st century America really true? I used to think so. After all, I had researched Christmas and Easter and found that most of their traditions were pagan, not Christian. And no holiday feels more heathen than Halloween with its spooks and spirits, parties and play-acting. It's just too much fun to be a Christian festival. And yet, the more I looked into Halloween traditions, the more skeptical I became about their alleged pagan origins. The first cause for skepticism is our lack of knowledge about Celtic religion. One thing we do know is that the Celts in Britain had a big autumn festival called Samhain, which also marked the Celtic New Year. This festival involved bonfires and would have been directed by the Druids, who were the priestly class of the Celts. But the Druids were wiped out by the Romans, and what remained of their folklore was suppressed by the Christians. We therefore know very little about the beliefs and festivities surrounding Samhain. We do know that after Christianity rose to power, the church tried to stamp out the traditional pagan festivals and replace them with Christian holidays. By the 8th century, Samhain had become All Saints' Day and was celebrated on November the 1st. The day was also known as All Hallows' Mass, and the evening before was called All Hallows' Eve, or simply Halloween. In case you were wondering, hallowed means holy. 
There is another holiday that is celebrated especially in Catholic countries on November the 2nd. This is called All Souls Day, and churchgoers honor faithful Christians who have died but who are not saints. The three days from October 31st to November 2nd were given the English name Hallowtide, but in Mexico, these three days are celebrated as Los Dias de los Muertos, the Days of the Dead. People remember the lives of dead friends and family. They dress up as ghouls, ghosts, and skeletons, and they party. As someone who came to America from Britain, as you can probably tell from my Spanish pronunciation, this Mexican influence on Halloween seems much stronger than the British influence. But let's look some more at my Celtic ancestors in Britain and the Christian efforts to suppress their heathen ways. As most of us know, the Christian takeover of ancient folk festivals was never entirely successful. Pagan themes remain strong. Easter eggs and rabbits reveal the origins of Easter as a spring fertility festival. And the Christmas tree is a reminder that the evergreen was the symbol of rebirth at the center of the pagan midwinter festival of Yule. For no holiday does the veneer of Christian piety appear to be thinner than for Halloween. It's easy to believe that the celebration of ghosts, witches, and trickery is more heathen than holy. Furthermore, modern pagans have been eager to claim Halloween as their own. But these pagans aren't actually celebrating a faith that has survived through the centuries. They are really creating a new faith from the symbols, spirits, and celebrations of cultures that were wiped out by Christians long ago. Wiccans and other pagans have recreated four major seasonal sabbats that refer back to the Celtic festivals. One of these is Samhain on October 31st. In fact, pagans, like fundamentalist Christians, seem to have a vested interest in playing up the heathen heritage of Halloween. But to my skeptical mind, when I see a vested interest behind the claim, I see a reason for skepticism. So let's dig a little deeper into some of the most popular accounts of Halloween traditions. First, trick-or-treat. At the turn of the year, it is claimed, the Celts believed that the gap between the worlds of the living and the dead disappeared, and ghosts walked the earth. Offerings of food and drink were left out to placate them. As the centuries wore on, the story goes, people began dressing like these dreadful creatures, performing antics in exchange for food and drink. There are several variations on this colorful tale, but they are all undermined by the lack of historical accounts of trick-or-treat in Britain. Tom Flynn, who wrote The Trouble of Christmas, pointed out to me some old English traditions around Christmas time that do have some similarities to trick-or-treat. But these seem to have died out long before Halloween trick-or-treat became popular. There is no clear record of Halloween costumes or masks in Britain or America before the 20th century, and late October's tolerance for begging with menaces appears to have arisen in the U.S. in the middle of the 20th century. So it turns out that trick-or-treat which most people think is the most obviously pagan aspect of Halloween, is actually less than a century old. Apple bobbing seems to be a much older Halloween tradition. Although I never heard of trick-or-treat as a child in England, I do remember bobbing for apples. Using my mouth to grab an apple floating in a bucket of water was fun, challenging, and probably a lot more healthy than eating my own body weight in candy. Many contemporary accounts trace the origins of apple bobbing to Samhain and pagan marriage divination rituals. Others link apple bobbing to Pomona, the Roman goddess of orchards. However, all these explanations appear to be speculative and lack historical documentation. For example, surviving Roman calendars do not have any festivals for Pomona in October or November. Okay, so what about pumpkins and jack-o'-lanterns? Although pumpkins are a New World fruit, the tradition of jack-o'-lanterns may have been brought to the U.S. by Irish immigrants who carved turnips that look like human skulls. The New World's autumn pumpkin would certainly be far better for carving than a small hard turnip. There are some entertaining folk tales behind jack-o'-lanterns, but the tradition is neither ancient nor pagan. Another claim about the pagan roots of Halloween is that Samhain is the name of a Celtic god of the underworld. This claim is very popular with Christian fundamentalists who want to show that Halloween is satanic. But there is simply no evidence for their allegations. The fundamentalists are just trying to make Samhain fit their own obsessions about Satan. So, the claim that our Halloween traditions are a throwback to Celtic paganism just do not stand up to scrutiny. I think the most that can be said is that today's Halloween includes a mishmash of folklore, 
brought to America by immigrants from the British Isles and Mexico. But in true American style, these scraps of folklore have been transformed by free market capitalism into something uniquely modern and thoroughly commercial. This combination of Harvest Festival and Day of the Dead has become the second biggest holiday of the year, at least in terms of dollars spent. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking Halloween. Well, not much. At worst, it teaches kids the art of the shakedown and the joy of the sugar high. At best, it's a chance for children to enjoy the theater of the masquerade and to meet neighbors they don't encounter any other time. That alone seems enough reason to follow the one tradition that we do know the Druids honored, marking the start of winter with a festival to bring the whole community together. All right, folks, that's our show. The Humanist Network News Podcast is made possible by the Institute for Humanist Studies, a nonprofit think tank that serves as a resource for and about the humanist community. And the use of our theme song was generously donated by singer and activist Holly Near, who you can learn more about at hollynear.com. Check out our podcast blog page for a list of the songs we played this show at ihs.libsyn.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing by calling our listener comment line at 206-339-4168. Or you can Skype us at hnn underscore editor. Also, check out Matt Boris's cartoon, investigative cartoon on Hell Houses, uh, on our e-zine, humanistnetworknews.org. Go see Julia Sweeney's uh, monologue, Letting Go of God, at the Ars Nova Theater in New York City. She's going to be there until October 29th. Oh, and, and check out humanistnetworknews.org to see some photographs of Jess, Julia Sweeney, Mulan, and me. That's right. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Hey, you know, Jess... I forgot to give a very special thanks to my cousin, Cal Crary, the professional photographer who came with us to photograph our interview with Julia Sweeney. So thanks a lot, Cal. Thanks, Cal. Everyone else out there, visit calcrary.com. That's C-R-A-R-Y, and you can see what Cal's up to. We're also still collecting uh, questions and comments for Marlene Matsumura, our humanist advice columnist. That's right, for the audio version of Sweet Reason. So call our listener comment line at 206-339-4168 or Skype us at HNN underscore editor. Happy, Happy Halloween! Halloween.